So welcome again to the Investor Investor. Today we have Martin Kleckman, who I've known for probably over 10 years now, and was on his first journey, first successful journey. He then had an even more successful journey in California, which I wasn't part of. That's part of the story, perhaps. So first of all, can we just, Martin, can you just describe your background and why you became entrepreneurial to start with? Hi, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. So well, I uh, studied computer science as an undergraduate, and then after graduating, I was not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. I kind of looked around and thought, well, I could get a programming job, but, you know, it seems kind of boring just working for an existing company. For a while, I went off to study music, actually, thought I don't want to just be pure computer science geek. But then that didn't really work out that well either. So I ended up back in Cambridge and thought, well, OK, I'll just try and start a company. I had no idea what the company was going to do at that point. I just had this feeling that, well, I'll, I'll give it a try because it seems like an interesting thing to try. And that is actually where I met you early on as well, because I knew that I was clueless. And so I went to our department's alumni mentoring scheme where like people with more experience, career experience offered to help out younger ones like myself. And that's actually where I met you, Peter. And you remember that as well. I do remember meeting in a, was it a pizza restaurant in, yeah, in Cambridge like to start with? <laughs> yes. And so then we worked together. So this really wasn't an angel investment. In fact, I say that I learned what an angel was almost from you in the journey. So let's just talk through what happened. I invested a little bit of money. You put some money into it. Talk through that journey. I was bouncing around with all sorts of crazy ideas of stuff I wanted to do, mostly driven by technologies I found interesting, really. And it was super helpful at that time having you there just continually reminding me that actually what I was trying to do was actually start a business, not do a PhD or something that was pure technology. Actually, I had to think of stuff that I might actually be able to sell to customers, that customers might actually be interested in, which was, I think, a pretty novel concept to me at the time. I think I'd sort of theoretically internalized it, but not really got in the habit of thinking that way. And so having you continuously prod me as to like, okay, so who's going to actually pay for this was actually tremendously helpful there. And you had this idea, I remember it right at the beginning, which I insisted that you went out to do some market research on, which was a rollback for an operating system with a school environment, I think. And you went out, that seems to remember going out, you went out to several hundred, I think, and got quite a lot of good feedback from that. Yeah, I've well, had this idea that like, oh, it's terrible if computers crash. So wouldn't it be great if you had a kind of reset button that if your computer crashes or something goes horribly wrong, you can just go back to one minute previously and get the entire computer back into a state as it was then. I still think it's kind of an interesting idea, although that would have been technically very hard to actually pull off. So it seemed like a nice idea on paper, but I think we just weren't the right people to do it. But also the market research, I think, did some pushback, both in terms of pricing and whether it won. Many people said they'd like it, but was yes. there a market for it? Yes, whether anyone would actually pay for this was, was super unclear. So you then formed a company, and I think the first thing you did was to go out and contract, didn't you, and, and worked for another company? Well, I realised at some point that having no income was not really an ideal state of circumstances. So I realised that, yes, just doing some web development consulting for random companies was an easy way to generate some income. And so I was effectively freelancing, but doing that through this company that we had started, and... In the process of doing that, just tried to keep some money on the side, which then gradually built up in the hope of using that to fund some actual product development then later on, which did work out. So through the process of doing this consulting, 
I then realized that there was actually a need for a kind of product in the realm of testing websites, because I was developing all these websites and they had to work in various different web browsers. And this was a time when various versions of Internet Explorer were still quite big. And so it was actually quite hard work making JavaScript work across these different browsers. And so I thought, well, it would be good to be able to automatically test websites across different browsers. And I spoke to a couple of web development companies, consultancies that did this kind of thing. And I got the impression that they would also perhaps use such a product. So, so we ended up building that then. It was a hosted service called Go Test It, where you could uh, record the steps of users interacting with a website, like clicking on some buttons, typing some text in a box, pressing another button, pressing some links, and then checking that the right behavior happens across different web browsers. And we made this thing work as a product. Then I found actually getting people to incorporate it into their workflow was still really hard. It's the kind of thing where loads of companies would say, yeah, that sounds like a really great idea. We'd love to use that, but then actually sign up for it and never actually use it. Because just actually getting into the habit of using a new tool like that, which does have a bit of a learning curve and a bit of effort in setting up the tests, it was still very difficult to get anyone to actually habitually use it. And I remember that great, you had the red and the green light. And if it ran correctly, you got a green and you used to sort of woo. And if it didn't, you got a red and they had to work out what had gone wrong in which browser at that point. Yeah, well, the red and green lights were for our own internal systems, mm. not, not the, the user's tests. But still, it did have the problem that often tests would fail spuriously for not particularly good reasons. Maybe you just changed some unrelated part of the website and then the test would break and you'd have to spend time fixing it again. And if people experience that a few times, then they get put off very quickly. And how big was the team then at this point? It was primarily me driving it, but I hired contractors to do various parts of the development. So there are probably five or six people who contributed to it part-time in total. And this was based in office space in Cambridge, wasn't it, at this point? Yeah, it was. Now, the acquiring company, can we say how they got involved? Yeah, it, it was a funny story, actually. So... Um, Redgate, a software company in Cambridge, had just moved into a new office. They had a new larger office that was way bigger than they needed for the current size of their team. And so several people who were doing startups in Cambridge somehow got wind of this and started talking to the founders of Redgate whether they could just borrow some of those spare desks that they have lying around. And they said, oh, yeah, sure, it's, why not? And it turned out that even Redgate was setting up a really nice canteen there and the startups who borrowed desks there even managed to wrangle free food in the Redgate canteen, ostensibly on the basis that we would help bring some buzz and entrepreneurial excitement to the internals of Redgate, the company. And so I heard of this, that some people had this arrangement and asked myself and got in on the arrangement as well, probably the third or so of the... With the team as well. Yeah. And so I and the few other people who were working on GoTestIt at the time then borrowed some desk space there. It was a really nice environment because it ended up being sort of like the best parts of an incubator, several like-minded people working together all the time. We would have lunch together all the time. I would get to know the people from the other companies there quite well. We ended up helping each other out, actually, and they contracted on some of my stuff, and I helped them out with some of their stuff. Uh, so it was a really great community there. And at some point, Redgate decided that it would be worth talking about buying the company, wasn't it? Yeah, so I had got to the point with GoTestIt that I realized this actually making it work commercially 
was still going to be quite hard, even though we had a product that generally worked. Making it work commercially, I was getting kind of sick of it by that point, to be honest. And so I was thinking of just giving it up and just going back to university, doing a PhD or something like that. I thought, and I thought that would be like a, a nice exit route. But speaking to the CEOs at Redgate at the time, then they, well, their whole business is developer tools. And what we had built was a developer tool. And so we thought, actually, this could fit quite well within their product lineup. They have a whole lot of existing companies uh, who already use Redgate tools for various tasks, including database administration and uh, debugging tools for .NET. And we thought this would actually fit in quite well, potentially. So we talked for a while and decided that it would be a good idea to sell GoTest it to Redgate. And they acquired it on the basis of an amount up front and then an earnout. During the earnout, when you're working there, you've got to know both your co-founders of your next business. So let's move forward now to the next thing. And I remember having a curry with you in Cambridge on Castle Hill about this thing called Reportive, and I really couldn't get my head around what it's going to be. So let's start talking about Reportive now, shall we? Yeah, so uh, Reportive was a little browser add-on that would manipulate Gmail. And so the idea was that if you are someone like us, a startup founder who uh, does a lot of emailing with people they don't know very well, maybe like user signups from our website, then what we would do is look up the email address of whoever has just emailed you. And we would try to find that person on various social networks. And so especially on LinkedIn, but also on Twitter and Facebook, if the profiles are public. And Reportive would take that social media information and put it right inside Gmail, inside the web interface uh, next to the email. And so you would get a little summary profile of the person you're talking to right there next to the email. This really came out of something that we wanted ourselves at our previous startups, me while I was doing Go Test It, and the others, they were working on various other companies at the time. And what we wanted there was to establish rapport, to build a personal relationship with our user signups. So we wanted to know, is this person we're talking to, say, a technical person, or is it a more managerial person, and thus reply to them appropriately, given what kind of role they have. And so we would spend a lot of time looking up people on LinkedIn and seeing if they have personal websites and so on. And Reporter was essentially an attempt at automating that. And where did Y Combinator come in? Did they approach you or you approach them? Well, we thought, given that we're doing this social media stuff, it would be a good idea to be in San Francisco because that is, after all, where most of the social media companies are based and where a lot of that stuff happens, especially the kind of consumer internet type of businesses. And so, well, we were based in Cambridge in the UK, didn't really have any contacts in the Valley at all. And so we thought, actually, if we join Y Combinator, that would be a good way of becoming established there. So... What we did was we uh, just went through the regular Y Combinator application process. We put up a website, like Y Combinator expects you to have some kind of demo online generally that you can use. And so we just put up a website. It wasn't password protected or anything, but we didn't promote it either. Just explaining what Reportive is and allowing you to download, install it, and use it in your web browser. And then a friend of ours decided it would be a good idea to send a link to this website to a blogger who then tried out this thing and found it exciting and wrote a blog post about it. And then other blogs picked this up and several others then fairly well-known blogs at the time picked up this reportive thing that apparently had just launched. We didn't really have any intention of launching at all, but uh, suddenly 
we were all over these blogs and people started downloading it and installing it. Within a day, we had 10,000 users <laughs> based on something we hadn't even planned to launch. And so at that point, then we thought, well, okay, this we're really onto something here. This is something that people find genuinely exciting. It was unfortunately right during the period when I was still working on the earnout for Go Test It at Redgate. So uh, I then went to the CEO and had a very awkward conversation saying that we've just started this thing accidentally and it's going really well and we kind of like to continue working on that. And they were really understanding. <laughs> yes. And one of them invested, I think, in the next business. Yes. Yes, they did. And it was really fantastic to have that support and, and understanding there. So even though Go Test It didn't end up really going anywhere, but somehow while this uh, new thing, Reportive, got started, wasn't really intending to conflict. I was intending to continue working on it until the end of our agreed period. But, well, you know, sometimes unexpected things happen, and it's great when people have that understanding. And we'll explain what, not everybody will know why Combinator, we'll put that in the show notes. You mentioned we several times. Can you just describe who the team was at this point? Yeah, there were three of us. There was me, Rahul, and Sam. And all three of us knew each other from this shared office space where we'd all borrowed desk from Redgate, essentially. And we got to know each other quite well, simply through having lunch together every day and sometimes sitting there till late at night hacking on stuff. Rahul and Sam had previously worked together on, on a different startup that was... On Mojo, wasn't it? Yeah, Mojo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. probably explain it better than yeah. me. <laughs> I've just seen Stu, actually, who the right. co-founder of that. But let's move on with your story. We knew each other from that, and we'd been discussing this idea of reportive for quite some time. So we described it amongst ourselves as we wanted this like head-up display for the web that uh, you get this additional information that is relevant, contextual, right next to what you're doing anyway. And this especially to do with when you're dealing with people you don't know. Rahul put together the first version of Reportive, but we'd all been discussing it together. And so the three of us then formally founded the company together. Which was an which American was, company, wasn't it? Yes, time? so we, we actually then incorporated it through Y Combinator. Mm. Um, that was a funny story in itself, actually, because after our rapid 10,000 user in a day launch, accidental launch, we then talked to Y Combinator and said, well, actually, given the traction we have, we might want to raise a seed round quite soon. So if Y Combinator wants to get in at their usual terms, then they should do that quickly so that there's a bit of time between the Y Combinator investment and the seed round. And so we did with them what I don't know if any other Y Combinator company has done before and after us, actually, which was to do the interview with them over Skype. And normally, you always have to fly there for an in-person interview, but they were happy to just do it with us with Skype and invest over the phone, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so if we then incorporated the American company with their help. We moved over for the summer for the three months of Y Combinator's program there. Then we had to move back to the UK to get our visas sorted out. But once we had our US work visas sorted out, we then moved back to San Francisco and we were based there from then on. And you raised how much in that seed round? Not the YC, but the seed round. The, the seed round was in the, in the months following. Then we raised about a million dollars there. From whom? Mostly angels. There were some small investments from VCs who were interested in essentially just uh, keeping their foot in the door there. And what did you spend the money on, the, the one million? It was almost all salaries. So there was uh, an inconvenience with the American visa system. 
that requires that for the type of work visa that we were going for, which is called H1B, it requires that all of the people who are employed under this work visa are paid market rate salaries. And so we had to pay ourselves market rate salaries for a software engineer in the Bay Area, which uh, at the time, it was just based on some list that we were given by our immigration lawyers was like 75k dollars per year, which is way more than we would have wanted to pay ourselves, really. But that's simply what we had to do in order to meet our visa requirements. And I think you live together as a team anyway, so you were sharing accommodation, yeah. costs and food. And <laughs> we, we just shared a flat together. Even when we hired two more people, one of those extra people then continued living with us. So we were four people in one little startup flat. So you're doing tech development, but you're presumably also you were doing market development at this point, i.e. increasing the user base. Yeah, so we, we were trying to grow the user base and at the same time just build the features that we wanted, really. The features we ended up working on were basically things that we wanted ourselves. And so because we were our own customers, that actually worked reasonably well. Generally, whenever we launched a feature, people were quite happy, though it was still a free product. Mm. And so... Uh, any sort of revenue seemed reasonably far away. And then we did start working on premium features, which we wanted to sell under a freemium model. Had you worked out pricing for that? We had some ideas for it uh, and had had vague conversations with people, but nobody had actually put any money down yet. We were expecting it to be like a, a small software as a service subscription. Dollar, like, $2, $3 oh, a month or more? Maybe like $10 per user per month or oh, something yeah, like that. Okay. So. That would then be for people using it for business purposes. So the premium features would be stuff like integration with your CRM systems, mm. where actually this kind of stuff is really valuable because often your customer interactions actually happen in a CRM if you're a business rather than in your email. And how many regular users or downloads, whatever metric you used, had you got to before? We get onto the exit soon, but where did you get to? How big was it? I don't remember the exact numbers. On the order of 200,000 active users, which was reasonable, but was not really enough to get the VCs excited to want to invest a Series A. And so we went around trying to raise a Series A because of our high salaries. We were burning cash fairly quickly. So the seed round gave us about two years of runway. Two years, okay, yeah. With all of the salaries and then the, our server costs and mm. other stuff. So we ended up actually only having fairly limited time. And when we started then talking to the VCs about uh, Series A, then they thought, well, like 200,000 users, it, it's okay, but it's not really that exciting. So it was difficult there. They, like if we had had a million users, then it would have been a different story. But at the time, it was already the case that a few hundred thousand was not really considered enough. To, to actually raise three or four million dollars or five million dollars. Yeah. Okay. Before we go into the exit, who else was helping you at this point? Were the angels helping you or did you have other advisors? Did you have any gray hair around you? So we had quite a large set of angel investors for this one. I think it was like 20 or so. And with most of them, we only had very little contact, but there were a few people amongst those who, who were super helpful. Often with introductions, the Bay Area is very introduction-based. So if you want to get to talk to anyone, you need warm introductions. And so that, that was tremendously helpful there. What about governance? It's unlike the UK. There isn't really a board as such, was there? No, uh, in, in that regard, we were very informal, really. Uh, we didn't really have formal board meetings. In practice, it was just the three of us founders running the show, and that was okay. What about information flow to the shareholders? Did you have any regular, did you do that regularly? Or? 
Uh, nothing very formal. We would occasionally send out bulk emails to the investors if there was something to say, but uh, we were not actually very systematic about it. And was it essential you went to an A round rather than just, I mean, in the UK, it's common that one will raise a second round from the, the existing investors, particularly the angels. Would you have been able to do that with the existing investors? We probably would have been able to because we had quite good relationship with our investors. In the end, though, when we were facing the options, well, raising more money from the investors would have been a bridge, essentially. So we would have had to have some pretty clear idea of where that got us to at least some decent revenue base or Series A. And we were just about to launch our premium product, but hadn't actually launched it yet. And as such, we didn't really have any data as to whether it was going to work commercially. We could kind of sell some kind of great vision about this. And of course, Valley is all about selling great mm -hmm. visions without having any concrete evidence for it. That's how surprisingly many things work there. But it wasn't really ideal. So when we then got talking to LinkedIn, who ended up acquiring us, that was partly on the basis that, well, if that acquisition discussion was not to work out, then we would be able to go back to our investors and raise a bridge round, probably. So it was only LinkedIn you were talking to at this point? We did talk to the other usual suspects, but only with LinkedIn did we really get to term sheet and like have a proper conversation. Okay. And who did that negotiation? So we had... Uh, some incredibly helpful help there from some grey hair. There was a uh, broker who had M&A experience, mergers and acquisitions experience, previously both on the buy and on the sell side from several previous acquisitions. And so he helped us there. Uh, he took to, a fee. He took a he, fee. He took a, fee. He yeah, took a yeah. percentage yeah, of yeah. the overall deal, but it was perfectly fair. It was totally worth it. He helped us navigate that process, which it's, it's very psychological at times. And so was a negotiation on price as well? I mean, yes, I mean, what absolutely. terms can you, what other terms were there? I mean, earnout, obviously, as we'll come to in a minute. But Yes, the price was really the main factor. But other questions are what sort of ratio of cash versus stock? What other compensation is there for the employees as well? We wanted a good deal for employees who were only small shareholders, but who'd contributed massively to making Reportive actually successful. And so... We wanted them to have good terms as well. How big was the team at this point? We were five people. Okay, so the five, three yeah. founders plus two. Plus two. Yeah. And yes, there's the vesting schedule, which is the period over which the actual acquisition price gets paid, because it's not usually the case that you just get all of the cash up front, uh, mm. because generally there's some milestones it's tied to. Ideally, those milestones are only time-based, so mm. not based on launching some product features or whatever, or some commercial milestones, because with those, you never know whether you'll actually make them. Mm. Um, so in our case, it was just pure time-based milestones. And the, the headline figure, I think, is in the public domain. How much was that? Not officially, oh, it's but not. the leaked figures of around 10 to 15 million were about correct. Dollars, yes, okay. <laughs> yes. And clearly not the NAT, but the NAT was two or three years, wasn't it, I think, in this situation? Yes. Yeah, okay. So you then joined LinkedIn, the team joined LinkedIn and formed Reportive. What did you do? I know you, you had a very close relationship with a lady over here, and you, I went to your wedding even. Mm. So you came back over here and worked remotely. But how's your journey been? And we want to talk about what you're doing now, of course, as well. Yeah, sure. The team stayed together at LinkedIn. This was really important to us. So it was not just hire a team of techies and get them to work on random LinkedIn stuff. We actually continued working together as the reportive team working on our own product vision. 
And so that was really fantastic. And LinkedIn gave us a lot of support there in actually being able to build the next version of the product that we wanted. That product we then launched after a year and a half or so, and it was called LinkedIn Intro, where we were trying to do the same thing on mobile. So essentially what we'd done previously on the desktop browser inside Gmail, we wanted to do on mobile phones as well. Unfortunately, that product ended up failing because uh, of a whole bunch of combination of reasons that were really outside of our control. But LinkedIn was very friendly and reasonable about that. Um, and so even though the product ended up getting shut down, we were all still really treated very well. And Reportive itself, is that still available as a plugin for... I, I think the last time I checked, Reportive had been uh, subsumed into LinkedIn's uh, sales solutions product business. So it's not under that name anymore, but something of that sort still exists, I believe. It's now a paid-for product, I believe. And you left LinkedIn, will come to you. Rahul also left LinkedIn, and did Sam leave as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so uh, Lee is still there, I think, but oh. uh, four of the five reportive gang eventually ended up leaving LinkedIn. And you went on to write a book, which mm-hmm. you will talk about, and become an academic again. So I stayed at LinkedIn for about two and a half years after the acquisition, and during that time, worked on our own product, and then after that failed, uh, worked on LinkedIn's internal data systems, which was actually really interesting because I got to work on data systems which were much bigger than anything I had done previously. And so there you can imagine LinkedIn as an internet company has really large amounts of data, and so simply the infrastructure of processing that actually becomes an interesting technical challenge. And so I got to work on some of those technical systems there and uh, learn a whole lot from the good work people were doing there. So I then decided I wanted to write a book which would explain these kind of data systems, so the infrastructure that you need for processing and storing data at large scale. There wasn't really any book that described this stuff pretty well, so there were a whole bunch of different books explaining you how to use a particular tool, like, say, Cassandra or MongoDB or whatever you want to use, but nothing really that helped you figure out what kind of tool you might use in which circumstances. And that was mostly spread out in knowledge just in people's heads or somewhere in conference talks or in random blog posts, but not really systematically put together anywhere. So then I decided, okay, I've done this startup thing. It's been interesting, but I actually want to concentrate more on these technical things because I feel I can add more value there. So I ended up taking out a year after leaving LinkedIn and uh, just on my own dime writing this book for O'Reilly. Which is called? It's called Designing Data Intensive Applications. It's got a wild boar on the front, in case that's important. (laughs) (laughs) And that has been quite successful. You've sold more than you thought you were going to do. It has been surprisingly successful, yeah. At the time when I was writing it, I thought, well, if I sell 10,000 copies over the entire lifetime of the book, I'll be happy. I'll consider that a bestseller. And now uh, it's been less than a year since publishing it, and we've already sold over 20,000 copies, which for a niche technical book, I think, is doing pretty well. I believe the number one best-selling databases book on Amazon at the moment. Well done. And uh, is there another book in you? (laughs) No, we covered that story. Not not all that soon, anyway. It's it's hard hard work. It's, It's hard enough writing one. But of course, your day job now is an academic role, isn't it? Yeah, so maybe six months or so after I left LinkedIn and I was working on this book full-time, I got talking to some people back in the computer lab, the computer science department in Cambridge, about some topics that I found interesting. 
And it just so happened that they were trying to get a research grant to work on a topic that was exactly something that I wanted to do anyway. And so I wanted to stay in touch with them about this. And then some months later, that grant did indeed come through. And so they had a job opening for someone to work on some stuff, which was precisely stuff I wanted to do anyway. So I talked to them and yes, ended up being there in this postdoc position, which was a bit weird because I never actually did end up doing that PhD that I had talked about previously, but somehow nevertheless ended up in a postdoc. I think just the book got treated as sufficiently academic work <laughs> that it's, it's kind of equivalent to a PhD. Do you think, can you call yourself Dr. Kleckman yet? Or no, what? I can't because I, I don't formally have it. I might at some point try and actually get that formal piece of paper just to, to seal that off. But at the moment, I'm a doctorless academic. <laughs> <laughs> and can you talk about the project? Is that... Yeah, of course. Yeah. The vision there is really we want to make apps that have the same convenience as web apps. So say Google Docs which is super convenient. You can collaborate with several people on a document shared through your web browser. But the problem there is that you're having to trust Google with all of your data because all of the documents are just stored in plain text on Google servers. And so what we're trying to do in this research project is figure out how can we have that similar kind of apps, but without having to trust anybody's servers. And also, while we're at it, enabling a few other convenient things like they should work offline, so you should be able to just edit offline and then resynchronize online when you happen to have an internet connection available. We want to be able to use local networks. So if you have Bluetooth between your phone and your laptop, you should be able to synchronize between those two, even if you don't have an internet connection available. Really, it's silly that everything has to go via a data center in Virginia. So we're trying to build the foundations of applications that in the future will allow those kinds of data synchronization. And so this is really something that nobody knows how to do exactly yet. So it's still very much a research project. There's no way we could just go and build a product on it right now, simply because there are too many unsolved technical questions. I do hope that maybe with another two, three years of work, we'll solve the hard technical questions that then it will actually be possible to build products on top of it. And that would probably be open source, wouldn't it, I suspect? At the moment, everything we're doing is open source, absolutely, because you know it's academic, it's for the good of the world. We don't have any commercial tie-in there at the moment at all. And that's really the way I think it should be, because this is foundational technology that other people should use to build their businesses and their products as well. Well, Martin, that's been very, very interesting. I've learned more in this and, you know, keeping very close touch. I've also got to thank you tremendously for you putting me where I am. It was only during that first two years where I effectively I co-founder rather than angel invested, although albeit I got a good multiple on a small number. It was during that process, I even learned what an angel was. And this is only about 10 years ago, nine years ago. So well, I think we I've, must have learned very much from each other then, because we I, I found it tremendously valuable It's been as a well. very successful, open relationship where we both obviously clearly learned from each other. So thank you very much, Martin. Thank you thank too, you. Peter.